Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, where we are looking at this is wonderful account of the events leading up to and surrounding the birth of Jesus. We want to focus our attention here in this Christmas season, and we're going to look this morning at that middle section of chapter 1 that we skipped over last week. In fact, let's just read this together this morning. This is no doubt somewhat familiar, but like I said last week, it's a story that we need to hear time and time again. So you follow along. I'll start at verse 26. This is God's word. In the sixth month, now let me just stop there for a second, because you might right away ask the question, the sixth month of what? Look back for a moment up to verse 23, speaking about Zechariah, when his time of service was ended, he went to his home, and after these days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. So when Luke says in the sixth month, what he's speaking of is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, we met this guy last week. This is Gabriel's second appearance. Six months earlier, remember, he appeared to Zechariah. We saw him last week in the capital city of Jerusalem. He entered into the very temple, you know, that highly polished, gleaming, holiest place in all of Israel. And now here he comes to this lowly, dusty little village of Nazareth, this insignificant, out-of-the-way little town. Verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, I know we're never going to get through this if I keep stopping to make comments, but this is remarkable. Luke names Mary, and do you see what the very next thing in your Bible is? It's a little dot a period at the end of that sentence. Luke doesn't tell us anything about her at all. There's nothing. He doesn't tell us anything about her character, what she's like. I mean, Zechariah and Elizabeth at least got a verse of commendation. Remember back in verse 6, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Mary gets nothing. Verse 28. He came to her and said, Greetings. That strikes me as so interesting in its ordinariness. This angel shows up and says, Hello. He came and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. There's that phrase again. Fear not. Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation he has shown strength with his arm, He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and return to her home. Now, one thing we've got to be clear on. What's happening here is actual history. These are real events, real events that took place in history. I mean, Luke makes a point all throughout his gospel to ground what he's telling us in history. Look back at verse 5. Luke says, Uh, Where am I? Luke 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Look over at chapter 2, verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Luke is saying, listen, what I'm telling you happened. It happened in real time, in real places, while other things that we know about are happening in the world. What we have here in Luke's gospel are accounts of things that happened in history with real people. These are not cleverly devised fables. This is no fairy tale. Luke is anchoring this in history on purpose because it matters that this happened. Just like that this happened really matters. And God has Luke record for a reason. It's not just historical information, you know, for people who happen to be interested in that kind of thing. There is something here that is important for us as human beings, and it's really important for us as Christians. The Bible is not flat history. It's important for us to see this. There there is this 
unfolding grand story here, a much larger purpose. This is about something God is doing in history, and it's important that we see that because it matters to the meaning and the purpose of our lives. And at the very same time, this passage is showing us how God interacts with people, with specific individuals like Mary, like Joseph, like Zechariah and Elizabeth that we saw last week, like you and me. And I want us to see both of those levels this morning. In fact, I'm just going to divide this message into two very simple parts. First, what is God doing? Let's look at the grand scale. And then second, I want us to see what God delights in, how he interacts and relates to real people like us, people living their lives, and what that should draw out of us. So two simple points today, what God is doing and what God delights in. So first, what is God doing? Here he sends his angel, verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. Remember this guy? I don't know if guy is really the right word. (laughs) And I should tell you that we had the hardest time this past week finding a picture for the kids of this. The first option that Kim showed me was just kind of ordinary, and I said, can we do better than that? And then she brought me something where the angel looked kind of effeminate, and I said, no. (laughs) And then she brought me something that had an angel that just looked like a guy in a bathrobe, and we both said no. And then we had this picture of this angel with a sword that looked like he was about to take somebody's head off, and I said no. So we settled on the ordinary-looking one. But remember Gabriel? This angel who spoke so starkly to Zechariah? Well, here he comes now from God with this announcement to Mary that she will have a baby, and that baby would be miraculously conceived. More on that in just a moment. But clearly, this was going to be something that God did. Creating something. God planting that seed miraculously in Mary's womb. But that doesn't fully answer our question. What is God doing? Yes, he sent an angel. We see that. Yes, he's going to miraculously cause Mary to be pregnant. But what's God doing in all of this? Well, we saw this last week. He's fulfilling his promise to send a Savior. So important is that theme of God fulfilling his promise that it's it's woven all through every part of this account. Look with me at verses 32 and 33. Gabriel says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That is hearkening. Isn't that a beautiful Christmas word? That is hearkening directly back to a promise that God made to David that one of his descendants would reign forever. And look at what Mary says in verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. That is hearkening back 
directly to the promise that God made to Abraham that through him, through the nation that would come through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. What, what is God doing in this miraculous birth? He is fulfilling his promise, a promise made, yes, to the nation of Israel, but with all humanity in mind, the promise of salvation. For God so loved the world that he sent his son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He's bringing his savior, his, his champion, his warrior into the world and accomplishing his purpose to save. Listen, Gabriel's words are absolutely clear. This son to be born of Mary is the promised Messiah. Son of the Most High, the Son of God, the eternally existing second person of the triune God, and he's bringing that about through the most amazing miracle. You know, at first, as unsettled as Mary might have been by the appearance of that angel, what he says just seems like, like good and happy news. I mean, what, what is more natural and happy than for a betrothed woman to be told she will soon conceive and bear a child when she and Joseph get married. But as the angel keeps talking, Mary becomes more and more aware that that's not what the angel is talking about. He's describing a very unusual child and he's seeming more and more to indicate that, that this thing is gonna happen like right away, now. What is God doing? He will cause a virgin to conceive, he, by his power, will make that happen. And we read that and we naturally ask, how's that gonna happen? That's a really good question. It's what Mary asked when she realized exactly what this angel was saying. Verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now look very closely at verse 35. And the angel said to her, the, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. In other words, God will do it. It's a miracle. It is a divine intervention into the natural, normal way that God designed for things to happen. That phrase, the Most High, will overshadow you is a way that the Bible often speaks about the powerful presence of God. This thing, this virgin birth that is so challenging for an unbeliever, understandably, is so important to our Christian faith. I mean, think about this. Of the, of the billions of people who have lived throughout history, only one person began life this way. I mean, this is unique to one person. Jesus' virgin birth, is, it's no myth and it's no random detail. It is a unique and special thing that only is true of the incarnate Son of God. Listen, people, people at this time knew every bit as well as we do how babies are produced. And Luke, I mean, Luke is a doctor for goodness sake. Yes, medicine, has come a long way in 20 centuries, but it's not some recent discovery how babies are born. So how will this happen? It will happen, Gabriel says, in a way that is holy and unseen and mysterious 
God will do it. But let's ask another question. Why? Why did God choose to do things this way? Why is it so important that he did it this way? Well, for starters, it highlights that what is happening is, in fact, of God. At one end of Jesus' life is this supernatural conception. At the other end of Jesus' life is this supernatural resurrection. And both of them point to God's hand at work. But more specifically, think about this. If Jesus had a mother, a human mother and a human father, then Jesus is just a man. He's not God. And if he's not God, then he is not the Savior. There's no salvation. There's no good news for us. Jesus must be fully God and fully man to accomplish our salvation, to take our place, but with an infinitely valuable life. Do you, do you remember what happened with Zechariah and Elizabeth? Gabriel appeared to Zechariah there in the temple, and he told him that Elizabeth, old, barren Elizabeth, would conceive and bear a child. And what do we read next in the Bible? Look back at chapter 1, verse 23. And when his time of service ended, he went to his home, and after these days his wife Elizabeth conceived, which is Luke's polite way of saying that Zechariah went home and made love with his wife. There is nothing like that here with Mary. And that contrast is another way of Luke making the point that that's not what happened with Mary. Joseph is not involved at all. God does this. I mean, I can't even begin to imagine what was going through Mary's mind, but it doesn't matter. God would bring this about. You know, we're going to see, in fact, we've already begun to see, in every one of these episodes of Luke's narrative, we're going to see that something has to come from the outside. It has to come from outside our normal world. We don't have what is needed to save ourselves. It has to come from outside. And Gabriel, who himself was sent from outside, makes a point of this. He says in verse 36, he says, Behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. She was barren. Something had to happen from the outside. And then we read those amazing words in verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. God must act and nothing, nothing. Not creating the world not causing a barren woman to conceive by natural means, not causing a virgin to conceive by supernatural means. Nothing is impossible with God. It's as simple as that. And this whole scene with Mary going to visit Elizabeth is calculated to help Mary see that and to know that. I mean, Elizabeth had already conceived. She's now in her sixth month, and it would be evident to Mary the moment she laid eyes on Elizabeth that God could do these kinds of things. And so Gabriel gives this subtle little suggestion. By the way, your relative Elizabeth, you know, 77-year-old Elizabeth, barren Elizabeth, she's six months pregnant. You, maybe, you might want to go see her. 
And not only does Mary witness that amazing confirmation of God's power, but the Holy Spirit adds all of these other confirmations with that six months along little prophet, John, who, remember, was going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even in his mother's womb. Look back at verse 15. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And Elizabeth, pronouncing this amazing blessing, verse 41, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. What encouraging confirmation of what God is doing. Friends, we need to grasp this, that this encounter between Gabriel and Mary that nobody else knows is going on. While around the world, um, major political and cultural things are happening, empires are advancing, citizens or uh, civilizations are, are, are being built in the Middle East, in the Orient, into Europe with all of these far-reaching implications. And right here in little Nazareth, the most significant thing that will ever happen on planet Earth is getting kicked off. It's what God is doing, and it's what really matters. But now, in the process of what he is doing, God interacts with people, real individuals in real time, calling them to participate in what he's doing in various ways. Yes, Mary, in a very unique way, but all of us. God calls us in. And there are things he's looking for from us that he particularly delights in. So now, second this morning, what God delights in. And I want to just highlight three things that we see here that I believe God intends us to notice and to learn from. So what does God delight in in us? First, God delights in this thing called humility. A genuine, not made up, not put on a genuine humility. Apparently, Mary was from pretty humble origins. Nazareth was a humble little village, but that's not the kind of humility that we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is an internal humility, a posture of heart before God, and we see it right there in verse 38, and Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word, Folks, let's not miss what is being said when Mary speaks those words. Sometimes, you know, we can read those words and just think, you know, here's sweet little Mary saying some sweet things when actually those are amazing words of strong and very purposed humility. Mary knew this was going to involve some serious difficulty and suffering for her, and I'm not talking about the pain of childbirth at this point. I'm, she couldn't help but start thinking about all of the social and relational implications. But she doesn't say, you know, before I agree to this, uh, can you tell me who's going to explain this to Joseph? And who's going to explain this to my mom and dad? 
And who's going to explain this to, to my neighbors and my friends? And who's going to explain this to my pastor, the local priest? I mean, she knows what will happen in a traditional small town. She will always be seen as having had an illegitimate child with who knows who. And at this point, being betrothed, Mary no doubt had already dreamed of her future. Joseph and I are going to get married. We're going to have a place of our own. We're going to have this many children. On it would go. And now with this news that she's hearing from this angel, she knows what she's going to face. The cost of this is beginning to dawn on her, and yet she doesn't bring up any of that. No, she just says, let it be to me according to your word. I leave all that other stuff to you. And what she didn't know yet is that in the future, having to watch this son hang on a cross and die would be like having a sword pierced through her very soul. She has no idea about that yet. Mary left all of that. The things she could imagine and the things she couldn't imagine, she left all of that to God. You can take care of all the details. I submit. I am the servant of the Lord. I tell you, this is just pure, purposeful humility. She yields completely to God's purpose. Listen, following Jesus, don't don't make this mistake. Following Jesus is not some program to realize your full potential. It actually involves dying to yourself. It requires humility. I relinquish control. I am not in charge. You take the wheel. I'm at your disposal. What you say goes. You see it there, kind of demonstrated in verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord. Not, look at me, aren't I special? I mean, the Bible is very clear. God is opposed to the proud, but he delights in even purposes to dwell with the humble. Those who are a delight to God, and they are a delight to him, are those who are humble and are overwhelmed that God would come to them and care for them. Second, Second thing we see here that God particularly delights in is this thing called faith, believing. Elizabeth points to it in her words to Mary, verse 45, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And remember, that's not just Elizabeth speaking independently. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, often there's a comparison that's made between Zechariah and Mary, and people sometimes feel like Zechariah got a bad deal because he was struck dumb for asking his question. Remember back in verse 18, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man, my wife has advanced in years, and Gabriel says to him, verse 20, listen, you're going to be unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. And that can be especially perplexing when you see that Mary asks virtually the same question, verse 34, how will this be? since I'm a virgin, but it's not the same question. And especially their hearts are, are, are not the same. Zechariah asks for proof. Mary asks for an explanation. Zechariah says, I can't be sure. Mary says she can't understand. 
Mary saw the human impossibility of this as clearly as Zechariah did, but her heart did not reject the possibility in unbelief. She believed. There's a lesson for us here. When our hearts are right, God is not opposed to us seeking understanding. Mary believed. She exercised faith. She believed. So what exactly is faith? Let me suggest two things. First, faith is operating with the conviction that there really is a God and he's active and he's doing things. Book of Hebrews tells us that those who will draw near to God must believe that he is and that he interacts with those who seek him. So faith believes there's a God and believes that that matters in your life, that he's doing things. Mary was a woman of faith like that. She believed in God. She believed his existence mattered in her life and that what he was doing mattered in her life. So faith is operating with the conviction that there is a God who is at work and that has to do with my life. But there's another level to faith. Faith is also trust that's exercised in the moment. We could say it this way. Faith is belief plus trust. I believe what you've said to me. I trust it so that I will live by it. I'll do it. I'll obey. Uh, it's really important for us to know that we won't always understand it all. Mary did not say, oh, it's so clear. I totally get it. I love this plan, and I'm excited to be a part of it. No, she says, this doesn't all make sense to me, but I trust you. I tell you this morning, as your pastor, this can be a really important space for us to occupy at times. When we don't understand it all and when something might not be to our preference, even in the face of cost, even in the face of fear, even in the face of uncertainty, I mean, this is what makes a person willing to yield to God. They trust and therefore they choose to do what he says. Friends, listen, your obedience is one of the greatest demonstrations of faith that there is. I trust that what God says is right. I trust that what God says is best. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. So your decision this coming week to not lie, to promote yourself or to protect yourself, but instead to be truthful as God says you should, and your decision to stay sexually pure, as God says you should, and your decision to curb your appetites and live in moderation, as God says you should, it is a demonstration of trust, and God delights in it. So one last thing we see here that God delights in, and in a sense, it's the, it's the product of the first two. I, I didn't quite know how to say this. I, I was going to say worship. But that didn't capture it as fully as this passage calls for. So let's call it, let's call it awe-filled praise. Awe-filled praise. Just look with me again over verses 46 through 55. This, this is Mary's song of awe-filled praise. Sometimes we can picture Mary, you know, quietly kneeling, demure, maybe even just muttering these words, that is not right. I mean, even if she wasn't shouting like Elizabeth 
did back in verse 42. Her heart was full and overflowing. Here's 10 verses of unbroken high praise. There is a phrase in Psalm 149 that every time I read it, it just gives me great joy. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Now here's the phrase. Let the high praises of God be in their throats. Psalm 149. You can look it up when you get home. That's what Mary's doing here. My soul magnifies the Lord. My soul rejoices in God. This is from the very depths of her being. And look, for example, at verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. What image comes to your mind when you read that phrase? I mean, let that image work. He has shown strength with his arm. The Lord is a warrior. He's a powerful warrior king. That's what Mary is saying. She's extolling God with high praise, awe-filled praise, and it's all about God. He is the subject of every verb in that song. That's Mary, and that can and should be you and me. It is right, and it delights God. So let me wrap this up by, by bringing this just very directly home to us. What will these things look like for us, this humility, this faith, this awe-filled praise? Well, it depends. I mean, each of us is living our own lives before God with, with our different circumstances, our different situations, but, but it's going to look like something, right? Because humility is a real thing, and faith is a real thing, and awe-filled praise is a real thing. So maybe there are places in our lives that need to be looked at Places where we're maybe arching against God's will rather than humbly yielding to it. Places where we're not trusting God's ways or not operating with the conviction that God is real and at work. Places where complaining or worry or preoccupation are occupying the place where praise and gratitude and rejoicing should be. Friends, let us not live unexamined lives. Let's hold up the mirror of this book and see what it shows us and we see, I hope, what this passage is doing. This balance between the large scale working of God and the day-to-day -day living of our lives. Yes, God is working. God is accomplishing his purpose and our salvation depends entirely on him. And yet, he invites us in. There's a way he calls us to be, and he delights in it when he sees us. He delights in us. So let us press on to please God. Let us look in this book and find out what is pleasing to God, and when we see it, let us very intentionally pursue it. Humility and faith and awe-filled praise. You know, I find it strangely reassuring how this passage ends. Look at verse 56 with me. And Mary remained with her about three months, and then look at this, and returned to her home. Back to her ordinary place, back to her ordinary routine, back to her ordinary life for now. And it's interesting to wonder, 
Did Mary stay three months to be there in order to help Elizabeth with her delivery, or did she leave just before Elizabeth gave birth to, to, to avoid the awkwardness of her own situation as people came to celebrate with Zechariah and Elizabeth? We don't know. What we do know is that by this point, Mary is now three months along with her own pregnancy. She's back in Nazareth, and soon, in another six months or so, God will orchestrate events in the world to bring her and Joseph out of Nazareth once again to the little town of Bethlehem, where something the likes of which has never happened will happen. The eternal word who was with God and who was God will become visible flesh for all to see and he will dwell with us. Glory to God in the highest. Let's pray. Father, here we are almost halfway through this Advent season and we want to check our hearts. Remind us, Lord, that Christmas is not about getting gifts. It's not about feeling certain things. It's about adoring your Son. And so, Lord, remind us that that's where our joy is found. We pray that you would remove any barriers that would keep us from rightly worshiping and obeying him. We pray in his name.